0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so here we are. We're in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to take a big chunk of scripture today. Mark 7 verses 1 through 23. And uh, let me preface it by saying this. Um, Here in Mark 7, here in in the first century, and Jesus encountering these religious leaders, they were doing it all wrong. Uh, They thought they were following God. But some of their religious practices were not only not following God or not pleasing God, they were actually offensive to God. The things they thought that God was pleased with were actually somehow a disguise for them to be rebelling against God. And I want to say, as we're looking at the things going on in the gospel we're seeing the same issues that we face today. They look different. We have different window dressing on our issues, but they're the same issues because people are people are people, right? Throughout time, we just keep recycling the same life experiences with different window dressing on it. So this should apply uh, in our lives very directly. We're gonna learn a lot today um, about following God's heart along with other theological and apologetic things as we do. This is part 23 of the Mark series and we are in Mark chapter 7 verse 1 through through 23 and I am just going to read straight through the passage because this is a Bible study right this is we want to understand you want to walk out going this section of Scripture I understand it and I can apply it into my life both of those elements we want to have in place so let's read it just load it into your mind soak in the ideas load questions as we are reading it What about this? Why does it say that? How does the top connect to the bottom? How is this one cohesive section? What's Jesus trying to get across? Kind of be asking all that. So here we are, Mark 7 verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I had, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, and you do many such things as this. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man." So, what is this, what is this about? This kind of, this is one scene. It's one big section. That's why we need to take it all, you know, at once in our study tonight. I see one of the major themes here is this tradition versus Scripture. Tradition versus Scripture. And how we can use our traditions, our religious practices that aren't, they don't draw themselves right from the text of the Bible, right? But they're sort of drawn from the habits of those who are older in the Lord than we are, right? That religious, our religious elders. And we can take their habits and we can use these habits to find ways around doing what God clearly tells us to do. That's the idea. And I'll explain this in more detail, but I think that's the big picture that Christ is trying to get past. He wants to draw people back to the heart of God, which is in the Word of God, which results in us obeying God from the heart and not just outward religious practices to make us feel like we're better people when we're actually ignoring our actual sin issues. So here we are, verse 1. Let's read <clears throat> 1 through 4 again. Now you're going to hear it, see, notice more, you're going to see it more clearly, and we'll talk about it in detail. Um, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. I just want you to notice they came from Jerusalem. This is the second time a Jerusalem group shows up to uh, pick on Jesus (laughs) and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. That means their hands were impure. This is, now this is Mark helping the the Gentile audience, the Gentile readers to go, what do you mean impure hands? Well, that means unwashed hands. Their hands weren't ceremonially washed. This is not a sanitary issue. It's a ceremony issue. Obviously, you want to wash your hands for sanitary reasons. This is about ceremonial cleanliness. Verse 3, Mark, and then there's a parenthesis here in verse 3. This is because Mark is going to explain to us the whole situation in case you're that non-Jewish reader who doesn't know what's going on. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Whose traditions? The elders, not, not scripture. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received. And that's an understatement. There's quite a lot that are additions these, the kosher laws or the laws that are in addition to the um, initial laws. Are we losing our microphone? Sounded like it was dipping down for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it was me. Maybe I got quiet. I'm just kidding. I didn't get quiet. Anyway. <clears throat> okay, so the the, um, the kosher laws and all of these sort of extra traditions are seen by many Jews as like a safety net. Like like here's where, what God says in the law that you should and shouldn't do. And then they just want to say, let's just build a big wall around that so you won't get anywhere near violating that so they add a lot of extra precautions and safety measures all to keep you from sin uh, but in fact it's a lot of artificial stuff and so they have many other such things that they do um, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots and then verse 5 the Pharisees and the scribes asked him why do your your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands Um, That's, that's the question is why, Jesus, explain why these guys aren't, aren't doing the things that we say they're supposed to do. That's what you need to explain. The accusation isn't that what they're doing is unbiblical, unscriptural, they're not in violation of God's laws. It's not the direct accusation. It's that they are violating traditions. Jesus seems to have no problem with this, actually. Notice this, though, that these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the ones who come from Jerusalem, they literally show up to disagree with Jesus. And something I notice about them, they show up to disagree. It's as though the agenda, and this is kind of, I'm I'm just observing this from the text, it seems like their purpose is to find something wrong with Jesus. Now, they look at Jesus and they don't see anything wrong, but they see his disciples and they see something they don't like, so then they're going to challenge Jesus with that. Um, They want to disagree, and of course, they find what they want. And this we see over and over again. If people want to find a reason to complain about Christianity, they're going to find one. We do have to guard our hearts in this regard and recognize that if even though we're trying to set out on a genuine, sincere, you know, discovery of is Christianity true? Is Jesus for real? Is God like actually calling me to come to Christ? We have to understand that there's part of us that may not want the answer to be yes. And we may sour our own ability to receive the truth because I don't want to have to submit to this and we may find ourselves resisting it. In verse 1, we find out they're the Jerusalem leaders, they're they're leaders from Jerusalem. Um, This is significant because in the Jewish mindset, you've got, you know, Jerusalem is the center. This is where God causes his name to dwell, the temples in Jerusalem. If you're a Pharisee, that's great. you're a Pharisee from Jerusalem, whoa. You're a Jerusalem Pharisee. If you're a Sadducee, that's great. But if you're a Jerusalem Sadducee, that's even better. So there's like a weight behind them. So when you live in Galilee and you see the Sadducees from Jerusalem show up and they're disagreeing with Jesus, this could actually cause you to be like, what's going on? Now we see this happen in the book of Acts too. In Acts, there's Pharisees from Jerusalem who go to Antioch and they're like, we're from Jerusalem with the authority of the Jerusalem church. Now they didn't really have that authority, but they pretended to. And it kind of gives extra weight to their accusations. In verse 1, it says they gathered around him. Did you notice that? They gathered around him. So it's, it really feels like they're here for the purpose of trying to challenge Christ, not to learn from him. Why do they want to challenge him? Um, There could be a few reasons. Um, They're what some people refer to as the old guard. The old guard. In church politics, we sometimes talk about the old guard. The old guard are those who They started when they were young and they started doing ministry and they got all excited about what God was doing in their lives and ministry and church. 20, 30 years later, they now think whatever they did is the only way to do it. And it's the only possible way to do it. And new people aren't exciting. They're suspicious. Young people coming up to be teaching, they're suspicious. I don't know about that guy. And they forget what knuckleheads they were when they were serving the Lord just starting out, right? And, And they forget what kind of chances people took letting them serve but they're not willing to take those chances on others. And this is what we call the old guard when we're talking about issues in sometimes churches, not um, handing the baton off to uh, new leaders and and young people to step slow, not novices being lifted up too early, but just really developing and discipling people for leadership. That could be one of the issues there. They think their way is God's way. Why? Because it's their way, and they've been doing it for so long. It's just obvious that that's God's way. And this is something that can affect us as well. We stopped self-reflecting. I remember <clears throat> at a younger age when I hadn't been exposed to as many churches in different environments and I kind of thought that not only was our church serving the Lord well, but the order of service that we had was probably of the Lord too. You know, and, and I was like a teenager, right? But now I'm like thinking yeah, I, I think that was just me thinking because we were doing it that way and I enjoyed it and I was so blessed by it that it must be from the Lord. You know, that, that like, yeah, we should have like this much worship and there should be this much time for Bible study and things like that. And it's like, you know, come on, this is, this is where I take my traditions and I project them onto the mind of God. And that can be a dangerous thing. So they may be doing that. Um, uh, and Jesus, he is not spreading their message. You know, here he is getting a lot of attention, getting a lot of followers, and people are listening to him, and he's not echoing everything they're saying. Instead, he's restoring people back to the purity of what God originally gave, gave the Jewish people in the Old Testament. He's giving them right back to that, restoring them instead of adding all those extra things. I said this was the second time that they've done this to Jesus. The first time it was when his disciples were uh, taking grain in the field, and they'd rub it, to to get the chaff off of it and then they'd eat it and they were like, Jesus, why do your disciples do this? It's not lawful to work on the Sabbath and this of course was them twisting it and and I dealt with that in the past. This is the second time. The problem this time is they have a tradition that's treated as though it's a rule from God and they're upset that they're not obeying this tradition. On a side note, there's one scholar who thinks that this passage in Mark 7 gives us a good reason to think that Mark has a very early dating of authorship, the the time that it was written. And his reason is that Mark presents this this thing that they're doing, this practice of this hand-washing thing, as though it's a very current, ongoing thing. He speaks in the present tense. The Jews are doing this right now. There's that little parenthetical, Mark, I think it starts in verse 3. <clears throat> and it's in parentheses and that's mark's commentary for the for the they have many things that they do like this they wash the pots they do this they wash their hands they wash when they leave the marketplace and when it describes that it kind of gives you a, a glimpse of what was an ongoing practice and that it was an ongoing practice in relation to the Jews and how they related to the church um it's kind of a complicated argument, but I'll just say this. The scholar's name is James Crossley, and he thinks that this helps support the idea. It's one of the many reasons why he says that he thinks the Gospel of Mark was written before 45 AD. When Christ is crucified. You're talking 30-ish, depends on what kind of date you take there, and I don't really have a solid date on that. But then we've got 45 AD, which makes, makes Mark extremely early, actually. Really, really early. Um, so it's just interesting. thought I'd share it with you guys. You can check out his stuff. Um, and uh, I also know James Cro- James Crossley's not a Christian. And so people can't accuse him of being some sort of... Because the thing is, okay, not necessarily in the scholarly world. Maybe scholars are a little more sober-minded. They don't just dismiss other scholars because they're Christians. Some of them probably do, but some of them don't. But online, in the online world, um, especially atheists and, and skeptics tend to have such a bias against Christians in scholarship, that their scholarship almost doesn't matter. It's just enough to say they're a Christian, to ignore everything they say and all their hard work doesn't matter instead of weighing the things they're saying. So there's a guy who's not a Christian who puts Mark at a very early date. Um, now notice this, when the Pharisees come against, and the Sadducees here, come against Jesus, um, it's not Jesus they come against, it's the disciples. Now this is the second time they did that. They accuse the disciples of doing that with the wheat. Now the disciples have not washing their hands. Does that mean Jesus wasn't doing that with the wheat? Jesus wasn't failing to wash his hands? Is that what that means? Or maybe it means that they just didn't know whether Jesus did it or not. You know, they didn't, weren't observing Christ carefully enough. I don't know. I mean, did Jesus eat with unwashed hands in this case? Uh, did he roll the chaff off the wheat? I don't know. The only, the only thing we do know is he did heal on the Sabbath. This was one specific thing he did that they actually came against. And they said, you're breaking the law because you healed on the Sabbath. And he was like, you're being stupid. I'm paraphrasing the passage here. <laughs> you could go back and watch that study. We already did that one. Um, so, we don't have any record of Jesus ever washing ceremonially or not washing ceremonially. We just don't have record of this kind of thing happening or not. We don't know, except for the baptism he did, which was for us. The baptism he did was on our behalf, ultimately. He's, he's, he's living the perfect life for us and then goes and dies in our place on the cross. The whole thing he's doing, his whole life is redemptive for us, right? From, from the, from the moment of his birth, all the way to the cross, all the way to the resurrection. Um, But then there's other things where Jesus goes and he heals a leper and he seems to not be made unclean by the leper, where he touches Peter's mother-in-law who's sick and he's not unclean. In fact, she's not even unclean. She starts serving food, doesn't have to wait till sundown or none of the normal procedures. She's just not unclean. When he was touched by the one with a flow of blood, there would have been an uncleanness there, but no, he doesn't have it. In fact, she's not even unclean. The message here, I think, is that Jesus is clean, and he's the clean one who makes us clean. That's the message of of Christ. He's the source of true purification, and that does weigh in on this passage, ultimately, when you zoom out. See, Christ is the source of true purification. All right, verse six, let's move on. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And now he's going to use the Old Testament to rebuke them. They're using tradition to rebuke him, and he's using scripture to rebuke them. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, or it's purposeless. Their worship to me is pointless. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition. Of men. The Isaiah passage here is from Isaiah 29, verse 13. And what I think is really interesting is how Jesus introduces it. Did you notice it? Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now, in Isaiah, when you read Isaiah, it's not a, a future prophecy in the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is talking about the Jews of his time. But Jesus says that Isaiah was not only speaking of the Jews of his time, but he was speaking as a prophet. And here's not just, not just means it, it, doesn't just mean it's a future prediction, but you're speaking as a, the mouthpiece of God about not only the Jews of that time, but any Jews who would be like that as well, because we live in patterns. We live in patterns. So you find that in Scripture, there's someone like you. Whatever you're going through in your situations, in your life, you frequently find there's someone just like you right there, and you're like, oh, Isaiah's prophesying about them, but he's talking about me. Because that's how I am right now too. We go through the same issues, the same struggles, the same rebellions, And there's many who care very much about what's called hermeneutics. That's like proper Bible study techniques. Hermeneutics is a fancy word. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. That's the, at least that was the fancy term they taught me. I thought it was pretty clever. The art and science, because it's an art and a science. It's very careful. It's also flexible and literary. And anyway, it's, it's a neat thing to study. But some people are very rigid in their hermeneutic in order to keep themselves from abusing scripture. And that's good, like I don't want to abuse scripture, but don't forget that scripture is also talking to you. And I mean, one, one person puts it this way, they say scripture is not written, um, you know, about you or to you directly, but it is written for you. It's, and you know this as you just read the word, you're like, oh, this is, yes, it's for me, man. When you read Psalm 23, you were like, I know David said this about him and the Lord, but it's about me and the Lord too and you see that it does connect to you and it's not just like a pure scholarly, I'm just researching data. I'm just data mining the Bible here, but I realize it applies into my life and that's really important that we realize that. Jesus thought so too, that's my point here. If Jesus thought Isaiah could be speaking about Jews hundreds of years later, then maybe he could be talking about you too, depending on your situation. Let me give you another example in the scripture of how the Bible gives us the ability to interpret it not seeing me in the in the text like it's directly about me, but but applying it into my life Taking principles from Scripture and applying it into my life. It's 1st um, Corinthians chapter 10 1st Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 11 and we're I want to read this to you and have you consider When Paul read the Old Testament Did he see it as directly applicable into our lives today? Um, so here's what he says in 1st Corinthians 10 1 For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is talking about the Exodus. They were under the cloud, they passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now I'm going to say, he is giving us not only the history of it, but that it has typological fulfillment in Jesus. Like that's, that's heavy stuff that's all right there. He's the typology uh, that Paul is seeing. Spiritual rock. Well, Christ is the rock that was struck. Spiritual drink. The, the drink that came, the light living water that comes from Jesus is like the water that came out of that rock. They were baptized into Moses. It's so the Red Sea is like a baptism, picturing um, our baptism into Christ. And so we're getting this typology. And so he goes on. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us. Examples for us. I'm supposed to be learning from these things. This should apply to my life. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, here's what I want to say. Modern preachers, a lot of times, they only see the Old Testament as examples for prosperity verses and examples for, to give you victory. And yet, Paul's like, and what is, what's the lesson? That you wouldn't crave s- sick, sinful things like they did. And so, the actual lesson has to do with putting off the flesh, putting off sin, and trusting God and living holy lives is actually the lesson we're getting in this situation. Um, verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, that's like testing God, tempting God as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer Now these things happen to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come in other words Israel stands as the constant bad example for us to learn from That's what we're getting. So we have two things in Paul's understanding of the Old Testament he gives us typology that these things all represent Christ and life lessons that from the errors and failures of those in the scripture we can learn not to fall into the same traps because you are the same as them. I remember years ago reading the Old Testament and getting frustrated with Israel. Why won't you just honor God? Why won't you just serve him and follow him and obey him? Oh my goodness, they went back to the Asherahs again. They went back and built the high places again. What are they thinking? They want to go back to Egypt, do they not remember? I remember thinking these things and at some point it hit me like it's hit up all you guys probably at this point, right? I realized, I'm the same way with my sin issues. Oh my goodness, that's me. And all of a sudden, all of my like arrogant, judgmental attitude, just I realized, thank you God that you didn't forsake him after all that. (laughs) Because maybe that means you're not going to forsake me, you know, and especially as a younger believer, I was not secure in the security that I had in Christ and so it I I had to grow in theology before I could really rest in the finished work of the cross Um, But yeah, he hasn't forsaken them and that's encouraging to me, but I learn from their mistakes So um, Yeah, I do care what the original author says in the Old Testament I care what the original audience says, but I also realize there is an inspiration from the Holy Spirit and these things are written for my benefit as well and we should look to grow in those things So, back to uh, Mark 7 and Jesus and these guys. Um, I think this gives us the danger of tradition. The danger of tradition. And we all have traditions. You have traditions whether you think you do or not. It doesn't mean they're all bad. It doesn't mean they're all wrong. But you should at least be aware that there's things that you have in your Christian life that are extra biblical traditions. You know, like um, I remember at one point realizing that uh, Calvary Chapel's We kind of, as a group, we kind of have like a, like a sort of, we want to make sure our buildings don't look like churches. It's just like a thing, right? It's not bad. It's not good. It's just, it's just like the way it was, Calvary chapels. I don't know what it is. It's like, you kind of want to make sure your building doesn't look like a church. It's like if you're meeting in a warehouse, that feels more spiritual for a Calvary chapel, which is funny because for most of the other world, the rest of the world, they're like, yeah, that's the opposite of how it feels to us. But there's something about that and this is pure tradition This doesn't need to stay with us. This is just kind of like something that was inherited because When the Lord was moving they happened to be meeting oftentimes in these like random locations warehouses living rooms Um, God was really blessing the Holy Spirit's working And then some people started to associate the work of the Holy Spirit with the warehouse They were meeting in that was the mistake, right? That's not necessary. These things aren't necessarily together We want the work of the Spirit We don't think it has to be in a warehouse I want the work of the Spirit. I don't think it has to have stained glass. But either one of those is fine. Because I don't really care. Because I can see that tradition. And not actually the work of the Spirit. So there is a danger in tradition. Uh, It can lead us actually to to neglect the commandments of God. And becomes an excuse for disobedience. And that's where Jesus actually rails on them. He's not mad that they're doing the traditions. He's mad that they're using them to get away from what God's actually commanding them to do in their lives. Notice that he accuses them of neglecting the command of God, because of their traditions. He does not say rejecting the command of God, which is very different. So, they are not consciously saying, God, we are going to rebel against you. No, they are just focused on thinking, I am okay because I am doing A, B, C in my life. And then they just forget about the greater, more important things that God wants them to do in their lives. So, the question I have, is, is there something I am neglecting with my tradition? You have a tradition, right? You, you go to church at certain days and certain times. Maybe you open the Word and you read it at certain times. Maybe you pray over your meals. That, that's a, that, I think that's a healthy tradition. These are… these are healthy traditions in my opinion. But are they causing you to neglect the high calling of love towards your fellow man and the high calling of holiness in your own character? Because you've seen it and I've seen it. People who have obvious, serious, unchristian flaws in their character but they think they are good, because their theology seems really sound. I just want to make sure I am not doing that too. Like I am not here to necessarily point the finger, but I want to make sure I am not doing that. And That is my job, it is your job is to reflect and make sure that this is not happening to you, because what happens to them can happen to you. Let them serve as a bad example in this situation. I remember talking to um, a young person years ago, a college-age guy, and he was one of those guys where you just you think it seems really obvious that he's not a believer. Um, the only time he would ever bring up Christ is to affirm that he is a Christian. That was it. So otherwise, otherwise in his life, he seemed very worldly. seemed no like no love for Jesus and no concern for serving God in any way. And so you wonder. You don't know. I don't know his heart. You know, but I wonder. I wonder if he's genuine or not. And certainly, you can't help but wonder, even if you don't know the answer. And I was talking to him and I I asked him, I said, like, are you, are you a Christian? Are you like really a Christian? And he was like, absolutely I am. And he said, I go to church. And then he said, I try to read my Bible. I don't know when people started calling it my Bible, by the way. I'm just, (laughs) when that happened, my Bible, I try to read my Bible. (laughs) You have your own? (laughs) But um, I know what they mean. I just think it's kind of interesting that we do that. Um, But... But he said, I try to read the Bible, which is interesting. When you say you try to do something, you're sort of implicitly saying that you don't do it. (laughs) So he may as well say, I don't read my Bible. But um, he said, I go to church, I try to read the Bible, and I've been baptized. And I thought, everybody always says that, right? Are you a Christian? Here's the things I do. And so I thought, how do I get past the defenses? Because maybe he thinks his traditions make him a Christian. Just like the Pharisees, I wash my hands, I do this, I tie this, I do that, I do that, so I'm good with God. And yet there was some serious holes in in their relationship with God. And Jesus is trying to point those out, but they can't see it because they think they've got their lives figured out. So instead I asked a different question. I said, how's your walk with God? And I don't usually ask, I think it's a good question to ask yourself. I don't usually ask other people that because I feel like it's deeply personal and makes them feel uncomfortable. Even if their walk with God is great, I think it's just a deeply personal question. (laughs) And it makes people feel uncomfortable. But I did in this situation, I asked, I was like, how's your walk with God? How's your relationship with God? And it was the first time I've ever seen this particular student um, stutter and stop talking for a moment, because they always had something to say. And I thought, oh good, I just want them to self-reflect, that's all. I just want them to self-reflect. The question is, is my heart near God or far from Him? There's a good question. It's not about how often I go to church, do I read, read the Bible, those are good symptoms of possible things. But how's my walk with God really? So Jesus is trying to kind of be the reformer here. If we notice this in first century Judaism, he's trying to bring them back to the the God of Israel. He's a reformer in that sense. And I think he gives us a clue as to the job of a real reformer. We think about the reformation in the 1500s, you know, the job of like a real reformer. What's the proper job of someone? Because the idea behind reforming is that you're not starting something new. You're going back to something old. You're restoring... You know attention and focus on the old pure thing of the past not starting something brand spanking new That's the idea. Well, Jesus as a reformer He brings people back to two things the Word of God and the heart of God We see it right here He's upset with them because they're ignoring the commandments of God because they have the traditions of man instead And he's also upset because they're not worshiping God in genuineness, but it's in vain So there's relational issues and scripture issues those two things your walk with God and your obedience to his word. Now, there's modern guys, a lot of modern people, everybody thinks they're a reformer now. Everybody's trying to reform the church. Everybody, it seems. And uh, many of the reformers, the modern reformers, we call them, and you probably want to be familiar with this term, progressive Christians. Now, there's a group of, I'll call them liberal, I'm talking about, uh, not politics, but theology, right? There's a different use of the word. But liberal theology people, people who sort of abandon basic Christian principles and truth, and then they try to say they represent like the, re- the real, authentic Christianity, when really they're just ripping it to pieces and cutting out the heart of Christianity. Um, but these people always change their names. They don't like labels. These are people who hate labels. So, 15, 20 years ago, they were called the Emergent Church. And not everybody who was part of the Emergent Church was a heretic. That's not what I'm saying. But many were and many of the prominent voices became more and more heretical over time. They don't call themselves the emergent church anymore. Maybe progressive Christians is like a nice title, but as soon as they get they find they've been labeled with something, they'll change labels because that's just what they seem to always do. So, just be aware of this. If there's those who say they're reforming the church and they say they're bringing you to the heart of God, but they're taking you away from the word of God. They're not doing it Jesus style. And that's one thing that everybody can observe. Because there are people out there who are very much laughing and mocking at the idea that the Bible is God's inspired word. And I mean like that when the Bible says, for instance, God did this, they think that didn't really happen. God didn't really do that. God thinks this. God commands this. No, that's not really the case. God doesn't command it. I'm just into Jesus, man, in the heart of Jesus and following Jesus because I love him with all my heart, but they're rejecting scripture. So that's like not a reformer. Jesus' style of reform brings us back to not only the heart of God, but the word of God. So then Jesus turns to these guys in his act of true reformation, and he says something that most people would say you shouldn't say nowadays, and he calls them hypocrites. And here I want to take a moment to talk about this, and it's going to sound like I'm defending myself, but, <laughs> but that's not my goal here. Um, I have online videos where I take on public teachers and the content they teach and I say, this is a problem, this is, and sometimes I even say this is heresy, I try to do it graciously, I try to do it carefully, thoughtfully, but I confront this stuff pretty head on. And I will see in the comment section of these videos something that comes up in people's mind and they say, Mike, why aren't you doing Matthew 18? Jesus in Matthew 18 told us that if our brother sins against us, we should go to him privately and seek to resolve the issue just between us and them alone. And then if they won't hear, then you go with two or three others from the church. And if you won't hear them, finally, you can, you can tell it to the church and you can deal with it publicly. Publicly is the very last option. I would say, they would say the same thing to Jesus. Jesus, these scribes, they came to you and they, they, they challenged you publicly, but why didn't you take them aside, Jesus? Why didn't you pull them aside and say, hey, scribes, let's talk. Hey, buddies. Hey, buddies you know I love you, right? You know I love you, right? Like, like I, I, no, instead he goes, hypocrites! In public, in front of a whole bunch of people. Why did Jesus in Matthew 18 tell me to pull someone aside and talk to him privately? And here he is in Mark 7 calling him publicly hypocrites and he does it in Matthew as well, by the way, right? Over and over again he does this. I think that this is the reason. Here's why I do it the way I do it. When people privately sin against me, I need to take them aside privately. When people have public false teachings Matthew 18 does not apply they need to be publicly refuted because the damage they are doing is public when the damage is relational between you and them keep it private when the damage is, is a public teaching well then we need to publicly undo the damage by getting refutations of that false teaching out into the, into the open so I do not need to call up a false teacher and have a private chat with him about how I am hurt by his teaching whether or not that happens, I still have to make a public video, or, or someone does, somebody in the body needs to do it, who puts content out there to say, look, here's what's wrong with this false teaching. And so that's why we do that. <clears throat> um, uh, public teaching is publicly rebuked as opposed to a private wounds, personal wounds, which we try to handle as quietly as possible, if possible. So I think I'm following scripture and Jesus's example in those things. The next thing that happens after, <clears throat> after Jesus calls them hypocrites is he gives them specific examples of what they are doing that is wrong. So we can learn more about like sort of rubber meets the road. What, what is it they are doing that Jesus is really upset about? And that starts in verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts. Keep in mind he calls them experts here, right? You are like pros at this. At setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And here's his example. And he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. Now, okay, that's the commandment to God. Honor them. And if you speak evil of them, you're put to death. Now, there's more to the detail of the commandment. There was, it wasn't just a passing phrase of speaking evil. There was more to it than that. But the point is that God's heart towards children honoring their parents is a really big deal. A really, really big deal. Then then going on, verse 11. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have... That would help you is Corbin that is to say given to God and this is where Mark's helping us out Corbin is a phrase in the Greek. It literally means a gift to God So let's say I say well my my home is a gift to God. My home is Corbin And then your parents are like ring ring ring. Hey, we're coming into town next Tuesday Can we stay at your place and you go? I'm sorry mom and dad. My home is Corbin. It's a gift to God I cannot use it for you. I can only use it for God You'll have to find a hotel That would be an example. And so he says, you say, if a man says to his mother, his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down and you do many such things as that. There's all kinds of weird little things that they would do to get around just being obedient to God and they would have it technically tradition-wise right. Um, in the Mishnah, in the Jewish Mishnah, Mishnah, you could look this up. It's in Netarim five six, Netarim, Nedarim, N E D A R I M five six. It records a situation where a man made a vow that he me- that um, that resulted in or meant <clears throat> he wouldn't use any of his stuff to help his father. Now the Mishnah is coming much later than Jesus, like you know, a century later, you know, sometime in there. It's hard to get the dating of some of the stuff in the Mishnah. But it's coming a while after, right? This may not have been as big of an issue a century later as it was at the time. Um, But there was a situation where it's actually, they're discussing a situation just like this. He made a vow and that meant he wouldn't help his parents with his stuff. Philo, who's actually a contemporary of Jesus, Philo of Alexandria, he records in his book Hypothetica 7.3, and I'll read it to you. He says, if a man has devoted his wife's sustenance to a sacred purpose, he must refrain from giving her that sustenance. So with the father's gift to his son or a ruler's to his subjects. Honey, uh, you don't get dinner tonight. I devoted it to the Lord. Like, and, and God's like, yeah, I really want that. That's what I really want. He's like, how about you give your wife her sustenance? And, but Philo actually said, no, you don't in this particular situation. So this was an example Jesus pulls out of their real lives that's going on at the time in the first century. They would find ways of getting around obeying God. The modern application of this, I think, isn't too hard to find. For instance, Christmas. Christmas is one of the most divisive issues on the internet for Christians. Um, I get the most hate comments from believers uh, in my videos related to Christmas, where I try to argue that Christmas is not inherently pagan, although it can very easily become materialistic and ungodly, I'm not saying it, it's just not inherently pagan, and we go through history to find out, is it really, does it really have pagan roots, does it come, is every element of Christmas really paganism, when you put an ornament on your tree, or are you bowing down to some Asherah thing, and I go through all that and try to demonstrate that, that, thank God, that's not the case, I'm very happy to say that's not the case, but there are some who have received a tradition that is not in the Bible, that celebrating holidays, Christmas, whatever, is evil, And they use this tradition to be completely and utterly unloving to other Christians. They have a tradition that allows them to get right past God's heart for how we would hold together in unity in love. And I would say even if you think celebrating Christmas is evil, go read Romans 14 and then hold hands and don't judge and have bitterness towards your brother or sister over these disputing or doubtful issues. It just isn't worth division. Tattoos are like this. On the issues of like tattoos, there are some who have received traditions on the topic of tattoos. It's, it's, it's bad or it's good, it's whatever. My point is it shouldn't be divisive. This is actually not an issue Christians need to be dividing over. This is a tradition. This is not, oh, but I have scripture in Leviticus. And I'll be like, well, you don't know how to read the Old Testament very well, it seems to me. And I have a video on tattoos if anyone's interested I'll put, I'll put my Christmas videos and the tattoo video in the description for anybody who needs help on this. I don't have, I don't have tattoos, by the way, none, so, except the, the giant one on my back of uh, Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> I actually can't stand Santa Claus, but that's my personal issue, and I don't cause division over it, and that's the important thing. So, drinking, drinking's another issue. Where some have received the tradition that all alcohol, alcohol is sinful. This is kind of something I was leaned towards when I was younger. And um, what I've seen, the part that breaks my heart, is that God's desire is for church to have unity, right? But I have seen people break fellowship between drinkers and non-drinkers who will no longer fellowship with each other. Outside of church, they don't see each other, right? Because we're going to go get lunch, but I'm going to have a beer, so I'm not inviting Joe, Joe Schmo or Jane Schmain or whatever you say for the girl version, <laughs> Joe Schmo. Um, I'm not going to invite them because I don't, I would rather have my beer than have fellowship with them. Or on the other side, I'm not going to invite so-and-so because I think they're a compromiser because even though they never get drunk, they occasionally like to drink and it, and my conscience is bothered by that. And I have a video on drinking I'll put in the video description as well, because now I'm really just causing a lot of problems that I'm not trying to cause, I'm trying to fix, actually. Um, and and I don't drink, so there you go. But the point is that Christians can't divide on these issues. These This is traditions causing us to create division, which breaks the heart of God. He's like, love one another the way I've loved you. And you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, technically you do the thing that I think you worship on Saturday, not Sunday. Oh, I don't think I could fellowship with you. And I'll be like, come on, man. Let's hug. You know, <laughs> we, need to, we need to get past that. We can argue about order of service and preaching styles. Um, we can think that our good theology or our proper practice of how we follow the Lord in different ways can be an excuse for shrinking our duty to forgive one another. To bless those who curse us. To pray for our enemies. To have a loving attitude towards family, which is what Jesus targets here, right? Because it was family they were allowing themselves. People get bitter towards parents. It's like a a thing that happens in life, partially because parents make mistakes and partially because people are sinful. You go through like a season where you can choose to continue to demonize and make your parents the worst people they possibly could be. And my thought is, well, even if they are, aren't you supposed to pray for your enemies? Bless them? Like, Jesus is seeing broken families and people are using religion as a, as a way to break their family up. But it's not even scripture. It's not even sin issues. It's just tradition. And so we can have brokenness in our families over things that, like, it's just breaking the heart of God. Uh, you can't make your family have great relationships. But what you can do is you can be one who always and constantly extends the love of Christ and doesn't use make excuses for disobeying God's heart that you would have towards those people. And so, not easy, but man, it sure is nice when your side is clean of bitterness and clean of baggage, and you're there going, I'm ready for relationship when they are. I'm ready for love when they are. I've dealt with my issues. I've forgiven sins. I'm ready when they are. Uh, it doesn't mean I submit to ongoing abusive relationships. That's not what I'm saying. It means that I'm no longer having my sin issues be covered up by peripheral things that don't really matter in the eyes of God. So hopefully we can see how this applies, I think, into our lives. Very directly. Very directly. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 says this, just as a reminder to us. Here's the heart of God for us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice, all of it, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so here's the heart of God for me is to be walking in love, walking in grace, having that godly character, not just proper practice. You know, those things matter, but we don't want to use those like what Jesus accused them of. You're invalidating the word of God with your traditions. God calls you to honor your parents, you are not doing that. Instead you have like, well, I I have this, I, Corbin, you know, I have a, I have a policy that allows me to get out of obeying God in this area. So this is not like progressive Christianity, may I mention it again? The progressive Christians who would invalidate the Word of God as a way of getting to the, quote, heart of God, they are actually abandoning the scripture, the plain teaching of scripture, as a way of, and they will say scripture supports them, but when you poke them on it, you realize they actually reject a lot of the Bible. And I'm talking about guys like um, Brian Zond and Greg Boyd and um, even other guys. That it, it seems to be going on and on where they try to say, but Jesus supports me. I'm just going with the Jesus hermeneutic. I'm following Jesus. And really, though, Jesus says what? Go back to the scripture of even the Old Testament. So that's not a valid thing. Beware anyone who leads you to devalue scripture. We don't find God's heart by invalidating God's word. We find God's heart in God's word. All right, verse 14. It says, after he called the crowd to him again, he began to say to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into a man, into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is a scene change, verse 14, because he gathers the crowd. So he's had a conversation with them and now he gathers the rest of the people in. Uh, Why does he gather the crowd? Because he's using this controversy to give them like a right Um, understanding of God and this is I think advice to those who do social media ministry you can do this you can take whatever controversy whatever issues of the day are going on and you can use those as teaching moments it's even advice for parents for parents to just be aware uh, or you're discipling somebody to be aware like okay here's the thing that's in the news what's the right way to handle this as a believer in Christ and then just use that thing this is like a I think a thoughtful way of helping people to take the Christian worldview and put it into practice Jesus seems to give us an example of doing this. So uh, keep it in mind. um, Jesus is using the teachable moment because he's not just interested in telling people where they're wrong. He's interested in making them right. There's a good example of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. He tells you where you're wrong. Like he's straight up in their face. He's like, you're hypocrites. And he doesn't even pull punches. He's like, you're invalidating the word of God. But he doesn't leave them there. He also tells them what to do to make it right. And so that's why he's teaching them verse 14 through 16 how to make it right. And it's a good thing to think of when you're in, when you're correcting people, when you feel like you have to correct somebody and you do step into that zone is ask yourself, am I just telling them where they're wrong or am I also trying to help them get right? And try to help them with that. (laughs) Verse 17, when he had let the, uh, left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Interesting that Mark calls it a parable even though it didn't seem like a typical parable, what we think of as a parable. But it was obviously something they didn't fully understand. It's not the stuff that comes in that defiles me, it's the stuff that comes out. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? And he's speaking here of spiritual defilement. uh, Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And I tend to think he gives us a list here, because he could just say sin, but he gives us a list of sins here, because I think he wants us to have them pop out to us when there are issues, you know. We're like, oh yeah, that's my issue. Oh Highlight that. Deal with that in your life. Don't ignore it. Don't invalidate it because of other issues. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. From within. So here's Jesus' lesson. The real issue is sin, not outward stuff. The real issue is the sin, not the outward stuff. It's not the food. It's the sin. Some say God knows my heart. But usually people say it without thinking about it. God knows my heart. There's two ways to say it, right? God knows my heart, and he knows that I am pure as the driven snow. Why do we call it driven snow? I don't even know why we call it that, but anyway, if I drive over snow, it's not usually pure after that. I got like tire marks on it, but it means something. Anyway, pure is freshly fallen snow, and other people say God knows my heart, and they realize I'm in great danger, right? Because you don't know my heart, but God sure knows it. He knows about the temptations and the struggles and the things that are coming from within me that I have to deal with. The thoughts, the impurities, and all that stuff that I still ongoingly have to deal with. And God knows my heart. Evil thoughts come from within. So there's a sin problem in mankind. And you might think, does that mean every time I think an evil thought, I've already sinned? Like if a thought just occurs to me, as they do, have I already sinned because that came from my evil nature? I don't think so. I think though that it can be sin while it's still a thought. It can become sin, and I think the point at which it does is when it joins with the will. So the thought is like a, an opportunity for your will to respond. When I yield my will to that thought, as opposed to rejecting it, now it becomes a sin. Now it becomes a sin. And that's like a good thing to deal with, is those who are dealing with, you name the temptation. Whether, if bitterness, you feel, oh, I want to be bitter, but I reject that. I I want to, I see that, I feel it, but I I reject that. Okay, good, you're not, you're not actually walking in bitterness. You're not letting it sit in you. Even though it's not a physical outward action, it can still be a sin. Um, So it's when, when it's joined to the will, then it comes. Uh, The New American Commentary says this about the issues of of the heart. Here, what's Jesus talking about? It says, the heart in the Bible is a symbol of the rational, intellectual, decision-making elements in human beings and not the emotional, affectionate element. So it's it's from my heart, when it becomes part of my will. I yield my will to sinful desires. At that point, it's sin. So he gives a list of different sins. He says, evil thoughts. Um, that's pretty broad. <laughs> evil thoughts themselves, okay, that's pretty broad. That's That means you're in spiritual warfare. The moment you, are, you have an evil thought, okay, now is a spiritual battle that's going on. Fornication is a word that Jesus uses here. It's a catch-all phrase for just all sexual sin. It's not just adultery because he lists adultery separately, doesn't he? So this is like a catch-all phrase for all kind of sexual sin. In our culture, it's like we have to actually tell people this, that outside of male, one man, one woman marriage, everything else is actually sin. Then there is thefts, murders, adulteries and then in, uh, he goes on and says deeds of coveting and I think that is really interesting. He mentions deeds of coveting and now there is some cultures at different times we see certain things as just not such a big deal. Like there are cultures of cannibals where they are actually eating other human beings and they do not feel so bad about it. I mean just think about that, like that, that, that is like a moral depravity in that culture. In our culture, we have moral depravity in the area of abortion in particular. It's like, it's like the radar's not even going off. We're not freaking out about it like we ought to. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Every flag should be at at half staff until abortion is stopped, right? This is like a huge, huge crisis that's going on. And we're not freaking out about it properly and not responding morally like we ought to. But there's other areas too. And deeds of coveting, I think, is one of those. I think that we consider coveting as almost like a, like a non-issue. Like, it's not a big deal to be coveting. I just want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And we live in a very materialistic society. We're constantly confronted with things to want. And it's even enjoyable to just go around wanting things. Right? It's like window shopping. I'm not saying window shopping is coveting. But I do think some of it is, right? At least for some people, maybe you're just wandering around. You just enjoy looking around. And there's no coveting going on. But there is a kind that's just coveting. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And this can be a very unhealthy thing. Romans 7, 7 says this. What shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, Paul's saying how he became self-aware of how sinful he was. That's interesting, right? This is something every Christian needs. You need to become self-aware of how sinful you are. It's a healthy thing. It's not a condemnation thing. It leads you to Jesus, man, and freedom. But he goes on and talks about one example of a law that really blew his mind. When he realized how sinful he was, he says, um, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And of all the laws, that's the one Paul picks. He's like, man, you know what really got me, what really showed me what a messed up person I am is when I read in the law that I wasn't even allowed to covet. He's like, okay, I, I didn't steal. I didn't commit murder. I I didn't I didn't do those things outwardly, but when I read that I can't even just desire, like I can't just yield to desires, I'm like, man, I'm I'm toast. I'm I'm in such bad shape. Like this is this is Paul's version of every man's battle. Right there. And he's like, oh, I'm in trouble. But coveting's ingrained in our culture. And yet our culture then goes, God knows my heart. I'm like you're not seeing it, like you're not seeing it. This is a problem. God knows us. So Jesus is raising the bar, or rather he's showing us where the bar has always been for following God. It's radical personal sanctification, radical yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit, radical obedience to Jesus Christ, where even my thoughts matter. The things I yield my mind to are even supremely important because I want to have a heart after God. This has two impacts on me. One, it makes me very desperate because I realized that if out of the heart of man, if, if my sinful temptations are coming from me, what does that say about who I am? And I become very desperate. I need to be saved from myself, because I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not good like that, not in the quality that I need to be. And two, once you come to Christ, once you put your hope and trust in Christ, and you experience the forgiveness and the grace and the justification, and the peace you have in Jesus, and you're no longer condemned over your sin, Then you realize that this raises the bar for sanctification. So now it's not about getting saved through obedience. It's rather uh, because he's washed me, I want real sanctification. I want to go for the heart of God that Jesus is revealing. I don't want to be like a Pharisee who lowers the bar, ignores commands like don't covet, right? Instead, I want to follow God in all ways in my life. He goes on and mentions other sins. He talks about sensuality, sensuality. This is what in, I think the King James probably puts this lasciviousness. You ever remember reading lasciviousness in the King James Version? When Years ago, I, I was using the King James Version. And I, every time I came across lasciviousness, I had to look it up again in the dictionary because I could just never remember what that meant. Um, so then I'd look it up and it would say, wantonness. <laughs> I would say, oh, wantonness. Okay. Isn't that like on like the Chinese menu? <laughs> it's like an appetizer. No, that's not right. Um, no, what it is, is, it's or unbridled lust would be what other commentaries would, would call it. Unbridled lust. Here is translated sensuality. The idea is this though. Doing whatever you want without constraining yourself. It's just the attitude of I'll just do what I feel like doing without realizing that I do need to constantly die to self in my life. Um, that would be the idea. Um, then he says envy, pride, and pride is another one of those issues where we're just blind to it in our culture, right? We celebrate pride. Pride's like we have parades. And I don't care. And, and even in race-based pride, like white pride, black pride, Korean pride, What? Like as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, like what place is there for pride in that sense? Now I understand, I used to have a problem with it, but now I understand when someone just goes like, Man, I'm so proud of you. I realize they don't mean pride. Not in the, not in the sense in which scripture is refuting it, not, not like, they're not like, I am so taking full credit for everything you're doing and puffing myself up as though I'm better than you. Like that's not what anybody means. They're just trying to say, really good job, like I want to encourage you, I want to, so I don't have a problem with the phrase, I'm proud of you, I don't think we need to have a problem with that, used in proper context, but we do have to have a problem with pride itself, a real problem as Christians. Pride is like the root of so much sin, and it's, 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 forgive the phrase, but I, I think it's the silent but deadly sin, because you don't realize it's there but it can ruin your whole life. It can kill your marriage. It can kill your relationships with family, friends. It can undermine your whole ministry, your service to the Lord. It can affect so many things. You lose your job, lose your house, lose all sorts of things because of just pride. So pride is a real self-issue we all have to process and work through and just become aware of. And I have a rule for myself and maybe, maybe it would be helping, help you guys if you're at all like me. If I think to myself, I wonder if I have pride right now, like if it even occurs to me, am I being proud, then I probably am Because I'm just that unaware of my own pride issues. Everybody else knows, right? Everybody else sees it a mile away, but I don't So it's kind of like if you're if you're ever in a dream, you're having a dream and you're thinking, wait, am I dreaming right now? Now I noticed something that when I'm not dreaming, I never think that Like, I'm never just driving down the street, you know, halfway through the day. I'm I'm about to get lunch and I think, am I dreaming right now? Like, okay, maybe you think, I never think that. It's never once happened. So I have a rule. If I think to myself, am I dreaming right now? The answer is yes. Right? Even though I can't really tell, the answer is definitely a yes. Well, if I think to myself, am I being proud right now? If that just occurs to me then for me, I just know it, the answer is almost certainly going to be yes. And you become a little more self-aware and then help you in your sanctification, hopefully, because pride is a pretty serious issue. Um, then Jesus at the end of it, he just mentions foolishness. And he just calls foolishness like, he includes foolishness on a, on a list of sins like murder and adultery. We, in our culture, think foolishness is entertaining. Foolishness is a, is a joke. It is entertainment. The Bible does not treat foolishness like it's a joke, it's not a game, and it doesn't treat it like it's a common expected thing. We actually do this with students, with, with, our, with our kids, right? We just say, well, they're just being a teenager. Well, Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, right? But it's going to be that rod of correction that drives it from him, meaning that it, it, kids need discipline, we're not talking about abusive beatings here, we're talking about discipline so that they might learn not to engage in that foolishness because it's actually very dangerous for their lives. But we often in our culture, we just think, you know, it, you know, 30 years ago, it's like, yeah, well, your teenage years, you're just rebellious, you know, 14, 15, 16. Okay, then it got a little bigger. It's like 13 to 18. Then it's the real rebellious time. It's just natural. We should just expect them to be rebellious. Don't worry about it. They'll get over it. Now it's like 7 to 35. You <laughs> know, It's just getting bigger and bigger. The time of like rebelliousness and foolishness is getting bigger and bigger. And... I realize we do, it's true we have a natural human tendency to these things but what we have to understand if we're gonna follow Christ is God asks us to put off all that stuff Put off all that stuff. It's not just a joke. Um, In our foolishness We learn habits of behavior and patterns of behavior that affect us the rest of our lives It doesn't just disappear after you stop being a teenager and so it is a big deal to learn and grow in those areas so let me ask you this, if you're bored in your walk with Christ, if you're like thinking like, man, I just got everything pretty much sorted out, I'm bored in my walk with Jesus, you know, I'm just kind of like, I don't even know what to do next. I would just say, do you see the radical sanctification and high calling Christ is reminding us of here? About going after the heart of God and living a pure and godly and loving life towards the world and towards believers. Um, maybe you've forgotten this and that's why you're bored because you've, you've kind of hit the stall button in your own actual sanctification so it should be an active daily process so the disciples they're totally confused about all this it says they were lacking in understanding verse 18 um, I think the disciples uh, example of problem that we might experience <clears throat> they knew they were free from traditions but they didn't understand what they were freed for right because they weren't they were rubbing and they were not washing their hands they understood that they didn't have to do those things but they didn't seem to understand what they were supposed to do they didn't know what they were all about this is something I think youth are especially prone to. Uh, having done years and years as a youth pastor, um, youth are often the first ones to notice when in their leaders and in their parents, they have mere tradition as opposed to clear scripture. Like they can see it more clearly than we can. And so they look at it and they're like, that's tradition, that's not even in the Bible, man. Like, and, and, and then everybody's debating all day long. And the youth, they just they, like, get it, they get it because they weren't raised in it as thickly as we were. Is that a word, thickly? That's a word, objectivization, and um, what I noticed though is this, is that once the youth realize, hey, wait a minute, alcohol is not really forbidden by the Bible, like hold on, tattoos is like a personal liberty decision, and then they just go like hog wild with those things. Mm -hmm. Like they realize they have a liberty, but they don't think about engaging in holiness and love. They're just like, liberty! Mm -hmm. Like they have a license, but they don't realize there's a speed limit. You know, there, there isn't that wisdom. And this is just a natural thing we experience when we're young, I think. So one of my concerns with youth was always like, I want to affirm the true liberties you have in Christ. But they're liberties that you might submit yourself to the holiness and love of God. And that's the part where the disconnect often happens. And I think that that's the disciples. I think they're experiencing something like that. Um, excuse me. Um, so in, uh, in this passage, I think we also get a really... Interesting point related to Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is the doctrine that the Bible alone is our final authority on the things that we believe as Christians. The Bible alone is that final authority as opposed to say tradition, having a separate group or list of teachings or beliefs that come from tradition and they're like equal to scripture. And Jesus seems to affirm this here because he's like, hey, you got your traditions? I'm telling you, stop it, do scripture. That, that needs to be the focus. Um, so scripture is is not equal tradi- to tradition. It's above it. And there's parallels here between Jerusalem's leaders and and the the Pope and the papacy and the Roman teachings that we have in Catholicism. Let me give you some parallels from first-century Judaism, Jesus's encounters in this passage in Mark 7 and the stuff that say the reformers were dealing with with Rome. Um, the people who came to Jesus to refute him, they came from where? Jerusalem, right? They're the Jerusalem leaders. That is the official hub of Judaism. Um, And yet, Rome says, we have more weight in the things we say because we are Rome. And we see this is the center and the, the, you know, the official city of the central locality of Christianity, in their opinion. So we have Jerusalem leaders versus Rome's leaders. Didn't matter to Jesus. I don't think it should matter to us. They had official tradition, the, the Jerusalem leaders, And in later times, they would actually claim that this tradition came from Moses. Did you know that? They called it the oral tradition. Um, In fact, they had a different term for it. The the Jews would say in later years that they had the written Torah, the five books of Moses, right? And then they had the oral Torah. The oral Torah was considered, they said it came from Moses and was carried on orally, passed down person to person through the generations, and then was preserved. It was finally written down years later and they have it in the Talmud. Some of the writings that I sometimes quote, they're Jewish writings, but that's tradition. They consider that authoritative tradition. So you have the written Torah and the oral Torah. Um, modern day Catholicism has sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And they hold them both up much in the same way the Pharisees would have eventually held up the two that they had. Jesus totally rejects this because the Bible ultimately beats their authority. And he's like, this thing is being used to trump. Nah, 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 nah. God's words has spoken, and he just kind of rejects the tradition as simply additions. Another parallel is that Jesus actually respects their position. He in fact says the Pharisees are sitting in the seat of Moses, and he gives a lot of respect to the position they have. He doesn't respect their teachings, mind you. He respects their position. And their position makes them have a lot of accountability. You better teach the truth because you're in this high position. But he doesn't respect it as if they're authoritative because of it. And that's interesting. I think we can treat Rome in a similar fashion. Um, so the point is the exact same reasons that I see Rome giving us to take their tradition as authoritative seem to be rejected by Jesus when, when Pharisees or Sadducees can give those very same reasons and I think that that, in, that means in principle that doctrine of scripture being equal or uh, tradition being equal to scripture that that is uh, flawed and Jesus seems to refute it so the authority of God's word trumps seemingly authoritative elders and their traditions and this applies to Jehovah's Witnesses who have their own additions that they want to add. Um, the LDS Church, the Mormon Church, that has their own additions that they want to add and their traditions they want to try to shove down people's throats as though it's God's Word. And many, many other groups. Anybody who's going to say, yeah, I from the Bible, but I have this thing that's equal to it. I'm like, nah. Nah. I'm not interested. Um, a couple other things I'll mention real quick before we... Um, I actually have a few things to share. Okay, so um, some skeptics like to say in this passage that Jesus is actually telling us not to wash our hands before we eat. And that's the point of this passage. I've heard this a few times from skeptics. Now, I know in the comments, people are like, skeptics never say all this. And of course, I'm just making things up because I like making skeptics look bad because I just lie all the time. But uh, but no, I've heard multiple times. So I just want to mention, Jesus is talking about purification in a ritual sense and symbolically. It's like if someone had like, Stuck their hand in sewage you, you wash your hands like they're not saying you don't you don't ever wash your hands He's just talking about tradition issues and purification um, ritually um, Is Jesus saying here though that kosher laws no longer matter here's a whole other debate And this is actually a pretty big debate and there's commentators on both sides Because there's that comment in Mark where he says in verse 19 thus he declared all foods clean And you notice it's in parentheses probably in your in your Uh, Bible, that's because it's, it's, it's not a quote from Jesus. It's very likely something Mark's saying about what Jesus said, like helping us interpret it correctly. And he's saying, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus is saying all foods are clean. Does that mean Jesus is getting rid of all kosher laws entirely? That's the debate. And there's some pros and cons here. I'm going to give you two sides of it, okay? The con, the, the side that would say, no, Jesus is not undoing the Torah laws would be a few things. One, Jesus says, hey, don't teach people not to obey what's in the law of Moses. Um, B, Jesus, it was, it was only later in the early church that the revelation about how when you're in Christ, those things are already fulfilled in Christ. You're obeying it, but through Jesus, not through obedience to the, the letter of the law. That came as a later revelation. And in the context, the debate is about Jews who are eating kosher food already, and they're just not washing their hands when they eat kosher food. So those people would say, Jesus is really just saying, When you're eating kosher foods, I use the word kosher here loosely. Modern usage is a little different than ancient, right? But when you're eating kosher foods or proper foods, you don't need to wash your hands as another act of purity. Just go ahead and eat it. You're fine. So Jesus is saying all clean foods are clean. And that's one interpretation. Another interpretation would be that Jesus is just saying food laws don't matter anymore at all. Um... That would be the plain sense of the verse where Jesus, it just says, he declared all foods clean. I mean, that would be the plain sense of just that, that verse. So here we have the plain sense of the verse versus the overall context, and these seem to be a little different. And it makes it a little bit of a struggle understanding which one's there. The application of it would make sense in that case. Um, the continued work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and in the New Testament teaching clearly tells us that we do not have to follow, as followers of Jesus today, the Old Testament laws regarding uh, the food, food laws, kosher laws, that kind of stuff. And so let me, let me share with you, here's my general opinion. Having said all that, I go a little bit back and forth on this one verse. Whatever this verse means, I already know I don't have to obey uh, the food laws of the Old Testament. But I wonder what that verse means though, I still want to know if I'm understanding it rightly. I think in one sense, I want to affirm it's just Jesus saying, if the food's clean, it's already clean, don't add more laws. I think that, that, that sounds right. But I think in hindsight, when you look at it with the rest of the revelation of the New Testament, you see Jesus laying out principles that were, that would easily be brought into the full revelation of the New Covenant. I hope that makes sense. Uh, I hope everybody picked up what I was saying. Uh, Romans 14, 14, Paul puts it this way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, To him, it is unclean. Now, it's possible that Paul sees Jesus' statement in Mark as affirming both that clean foods are clean by themselves and all foods, if you're in Christ, are clean because I'm in him and he declared all things clean. So there may be like a double sort of meaning that's there. But let me talk a little bit about New Testament teaching that does weigh in on this. It's Hebrews 9 verses 9 and 10. It talks about the food laws of the Old Testament, it says, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered at the temple, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So there was a, there were temporary and the Reformation has come in Christ is what Hebrews is telling us. They would show the constant issue of sin. Why do you need to always worry about purity, purity, purity? You're unclean. Get clean, get clean, get clean. Because we're dealing with sin issues in humankind. It's symbolic. It's representative. In Christ, it's resolved. Um, Colossians 2 verses 16 through 23 shows us what our heart should be as new covenant believers in Christ. Colossians 2.16 says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Okay, no one can come and say, you can't eat that because it's pork, or you can't eat that because it's whatever, or you have to eat it. You, some, some have tried, they're like, oh, you'll be a Christian? Eat pork to prove you're really free. I'm like, yeah, that's not in the Bible. Like, that's not something you do to people, you know, stop. The point is, let no one judge you in these things. This is not an issue to judge people in. We're, we have liberty to abstain or eat either way. Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All those food laws and stuff, they're a shadow of Christ. Now you're in Christ. You are, you're, you're literally walking in the fulfillment of the kosher laws by just being in Jesus. That's the point. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? Notice the connection to what Jesus said. He's like, when you eat it, the stomach destroys it, it perishes with the use. And now they're kind of connecting this principle to Jesus's statement in Mark. Don't let people tell you what you can't touch, what you can't eat. It just perishes when you use it. These things are just physical things. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. And here's the big problem and the final point I want to make tonight. The big problem, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Jesus' whole point with the Pharisees is you're obsessing over things that aren't actually helping you live a sinless life, right? You're obsessing over things that aren't making you you more pure in your walk with me. These things get us dis- distracted from walking in love and sanctification when we focus on them instead of the fullness of what we have in Christ, which means that your your sanctification your focus right now should be make no indulgence of the flesh no Yielding to carnal sinful fleshly desires. This is all on you. No one can make you do this. It's in your relationship with God. It's part of your sanctification. No room for the flesh. That's the call for Christians. Most often though, what we see is, well, you know, you can make a little room for the flesh, just not too much. Well, the flesh is like a pro-grappler. You know, you you go against a pro-grappler and you're like, well, I'll just give him my toe. I'll just give him my toe. I'll be fine. In three seconds, he's got your whole body. Because that's what they're good at. You know, and, and if someone, I remember being, when I was a little kid and I'd visit my dad. And if he wanted to wrestle, which I never did, because he's a six foot four, big, strong guy. And I was six pounds, you know, four feet tall until I was like 16. And, and it was like, I don't want to wrestle. Whatever part of my body he gets a hold of, I lose. That's just how it works. And that's how it is with the flesh. Any yielding of my heart over to sin, it just messes me up, man. I'm yielding myself to the control of this enemy that's in me. So the question isn't, um, am I following all the r- right rules? That's kind of the wrong question. Nor is the statement, I don't have any rules because I have liberty in Christ. The idea is that I want to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that should be kind of the obsessive thought of my day. Am I walking in the spirit or am I fulfilling the lust of the flesh right now? How do I just serve God walk in the spirit? I want to be doing this on a daily regular basis and not confuse myself by thinking if I check certain boxes I'm now being a good Christian and then forget that it's a heart issue of following him moment to moment day to day honoring him like when in Ephesus the letter to Ephesus came in the book of Revelation and he complains to them that they left their first love I, I really feel fairly strongly that they were shocked to read that letter. And that it probably took them a while to realize how true it was. Because they were going about a lot of the same practices. But the heart relationship with God, that thing was missing. Something was just wrong there. So he tells them, solution, repent, do the first things. Go back to those first works, the first thing in your walk with me. Remember those days, you know, when it was just so pure and so simple. I'm, I belong to God. I'm going to live for Him. Into story it's that simple let's pray father we thank you for your holy word we thank you jesus that um we see in the scripture these amazing pictures of uh people going through lives that are different than ours but it's the same uh the issues are the same so help us see how to apply it how to live it out how to take the word of god and get it into our lives so that we would be honoring the heart of god We pray, Lord, that we would live for you and we would know how to do so. You remind us, Lord, to love our enemies, to honor our parents, to um, be good employees, to let love be sincere, to put off bitterness, to realize that pride is, is, is a terrible sin that we don't want anything to do with, to deal with coveting, and to cut those things off right at the the root, right at the source, Lord, to deal with those thoughts as they arise and yield to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and walk in your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.